following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Well, good morning to all, and welcome and thanks for joining us this morning at Church of the Living God, whether it's here in person or if you're joining us online this morning, it's good to have you in community with us and fellowshipping with us. Hi, Kathy. Uh, also, it's good to have you here. I was telling my wife just this last week, like, it hasn't felt like winter yet in Traverse City, really. Like, this has been really mild. It's really nice. And uh, so I'm going to take the blame for that. And here we are. And I know it was cold getting here this morning. And depending where you live, the drive here might have been a little dicey. So uh, thanks for braving the elements for us. I'm going to begin this morning with a prayer taken from Psalm chapter 50. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read some uh, key portions of it. Psalm 50, beginning of verse 1. Let's pray. The Lord, the mighty one, is God, and he has spoken. He has summoned all humanity from where the sun rises to where it sets. From Mount Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines in his glorious radiance. Our God approaches, and he is not silent. Shortly after that, the psalmist says, Selah, or interlude. I like that one. Our God approaches, and he is not silent. Oh, my people, listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you, Israel. I am your God. I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer. But I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens, for all the animals of the forest are mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows that you made to the Most High. Giving thanks is a sacrifice that truly honors me. If you keep my path, I will reveal to you the salvation of God. Lord, I'm grateful this morning that you're a God who approaches and it is not silent. You speak to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through your creation, the revelation of your world through your people. And Lord, even if there's times where we feel alone or we feel distant, the reality is that you are constantly the God who approaches and that you are not silent. Please give us the wisdom to hear your voice and to recognize your presence. And may it change us and transform us increasingly into the image of Christ. Amen. All right couple announcements this morning. First of all, there is a business meeting after church today, and we're going to try to do that within like a 30 to 45 minute framework. So what's going to happen is when the service is done, I'm going to give the message, we're going to sing. We'll take about a five to 10 minute break because I need a little bit of time to change some things over because we are not going to be streaming this on the Facebook live stream. We're going to be doing it on a YouTube channel. So for those of you who are at home, uh, if you got the newsletter from our church, I think it was yesterday, there should be a link in there where you can watch this start up. If you're on Slack, uh, it's, a link will be posted in the lobby section of Slack. And if at the end of the day, you're just not sure how to watch it, but you really want to, if you message the church's Facebook page, there are people who are monitoring the church's Facebook page, and they can connect you with that. There will be child care during that time. I should add. And also, we'll get an update on the fire. I know many of you are wondering what's going on. We'll talk about that too. Second thing is we're putting together a number of ministry teams. 
and we need both leaders and helpers for these ministry teams. So this is opportunities for a lot of this having to do with interest groups like I don't know if you've seen it on Slack, but a hiking group has already started. There's also people interested in kayaking and doing board games and all kinds of things. So the, the idea is we would love for you to be involved. And if you'd like to take leadership in something like this, we'd love you to do that as well. So there is a form online you can fill out. And it's at uh, bit. Uh, you can read it. It's also in your notes if you pick up notes this morning. And if you're like, I don't want to go online for one more thing, there are paper copies in the back on a table. You can pick up a paper copy, hand it to Scott Smith. He'll get you connected. And then finally, just a reminder, there's opportunities to serve in CLG missions. Right now, the particular opportunity we have is local, and that is helping with Goodwill in once a month, serving suppers on Friday evenings. CLG has the Friday evening slot. It's about a two-hour block of time, I believe. I, I want to say like 4 or 4.30 to 6 or 6.30 Esther. Okay. If you would like to help with that, talk with Esther Kruger. Um, once again, once a month. My wife and I did it for a while, and it was um, actually a really enjoyable experience. It's a wonderful way to help the community. Also, the mission board would like one or two people to join the board. If you have a heart for missions, and that could be missions locally or far away, though in particular right now, uh, COVID is carving out time where there's a lot more space to focus on local missions because it's a lot harder to go further away. So things that we do with Single Mom or Goodwill Inn or Pregnancy Care Center, different things like that. Um, Esther would love to have more people on the mission board so just so we can be deeply involved in our community. So Esther, just wave at everybody so they all know who Esther is. Talk with Esther if you've got any questions about being involved with something like this. All right, I got a lot to talk about today, so let's just get to it. Uh, also, uh, today was cold and this was my warmest sweater. I make no apologies. All right. So moving from 2019 to 2020, it was my sense that we had some really good momentum going here in the church. And this was on a number of levels. Uh, at that time, our small groups were just thriving and the reports we were getting from different small group leaders was that real ministry and discipleship was happening. Kids and youth ministry were doing well. Uh, Message Plus, I distinctly remember, we were having great conversations in Message Plus with a really good group of people. The worship team was clicking. I distinctly remember also 2019 into 2020, a couple Sundays where I was like, man, you guys are knocking this out of the park. But plus, we had a new stage. We had a new sound system. The mission board had new life thanks to Esther stepping up and going, hey, we, we need to get this missions things going again. And, and so we were, we were clicking, it felt like, at least to me. And then COVID hits. And granted, COVID hits everybody, but I mean, it felt personal. Like, come on, <laughs> this trade was rolling. And so suddenly we're going virtual and I forget how long we were entirely virtual. Was that maybe eight to 10 weeks, I wanna say? And then election tension was everywhere. So, I mean, that didn't help. And once again, that's not unique to us. This is, uh, I guess, an opportunity in all of the American church for some refining and some discipleship to take place. And since we're part of the American church, that includes us. So then I think it was around May, we start using outdoor space. We have a nice facility here. And so we started meeting together in person. We were able to sing outside. People could stay outside if they were more comfortable. We had a big open gym. So there were some bumps moving into that phase, but we started clicking on that phase. 
We moved back inside in September. There's some bumps once again, but I felt like we settled in. And okay, so we're, we're moving, we're moving, we're moving. The third Sunday of Advent is the first Sunday we hit the full band back on the stage. Uh, up until then, it had just been a couple people at a time. Full band back on the stage, third Sunday of Advent. It's also the third week of the building after Becky and all the elves had decorated things so nicely. And then, of course, we have a fire. Like, okay. And so we not only lost gym space and moved here into the lobby, we, we lost the band. I mean, we're limited by the channels we have in the sound system, so we are just limited in what we can offer here on a Sunday morning. But a bunch of us had a meeting the Monday night after the fire, and the working assumption based on uh, some contractors who had come in on the very, the very day after the fire, so people came in right away. And we're like, okay, we're probably looking at an eight-week process. Let's call it a 10-week process just to make it um, reasonable. So, yeah, we'll be back in the gymnatorium by the beginning of March, beginning of March. So that was eight weeks ago. We haven't started yet. Uh, it's probably going to be at least two more weeks before we do start. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the business meeting. So, yeah, at least twice as long as we thought. Um, I, I, frankly, I think we'll be doing good if we're in by May, just to be honest with you. So here we are in the lobby. And people had legitimate concerns about meeting in person just because of either health issues of their own or family members or they had concerns like, I have the kind of job that if I get sick and I have to miss two weeks of work, this isn't going to work. Like, people had legitimate concerns like that. They were comfortable with the outdoors and they were comfortable with a lot of space in the gym. And this room is not as comfortable for something like this because it's pretty cozy. And that's not a criticism to people who don't feel comfortable in here. It's just an observation. And so while the family of people who consider CLG to be their home is much broader than you would pick up here from a Sunday morning, and Scott's going to talk about that during the business meeting, it still feels like a community step backward in the sense that though we're close here, literally, uh, it, it's limiting to the number of people in our church family that participate. And I don't know about you, but some days it felt like we're in some 21st century version of Job where God's like, hey, uh, did you see my people CLG? And Satan's like, do they still have Advent candles? And then it just went from there. And I'm not saying that's how it happened. I'm just saying it's how it feels sometimes. I, I like blues music. There's a singer named Kaleo. He sings a song called Can't Go On Without You. Has anybody heard this song? Can't go on without you. I'll keep going. Based on applause. That, no, that's what I figured. Oh, nope. I went with the initial gut reaction you had. And that was, a lot of you went like this. I've actually found myself walking along kind of just singing this chorus sometimes during the day. Can't go on without you. Now, he's singing it to a woman. I'm singing it to God like, it's only one way this is going to work. Only one way this is going to work. But I have an opinion, and my opinion is this. I'm increasingly convinced that God is using this season to deconstruct us individually and corporately so he can reconstruct something better. And one of my reasons is this. Because what is coming out of this is a big, huge, messy sanctification process. So I think it's fair to say most of us were drained of our emotional reserves last year. 
Most of us got to a point where there were just no filters anymore. We're just like, what's in my heart's coming out my mouth. For better or for worse, I don't know. That was my experience, uh, not only for myself, but as I interacted with other people. And that makes it messy, right? And it makes it hard. And it continues to be hard because we're, we're still in a place in world history and culturally with the pandemic and all kinds of stuff where a lot of these things are still raw. But my question is, what if it's a gift? What if instead of just something that we view as a huge setback that we just have to slog through and get over, what if we view it as God's way of stripping away our routines and our comforts and our facades and he's getting us refocused on him? And anytime God does that, it is for our good and it will be for God's glory. I quoted a poet named Auden a couple months ago. He has this great line. He had written this story or this poem about the difficulty of being a Christian and following Jesus. And one of his lines in there is, we who must die demand a miracle. But I wonder if it's not that dramatic for us. What if we're just saying something like this? We who are frustrated and angry at half the people in our own church and in despair about our ability to do life together because we're so different and this lobby that was cozy at first is now feeling pretty crowded, we need a miracle. In fact, we beg for a miracle. I think God's like, that's a great idea. Um, settle into that lobby. Not done yet. We've got some more work to do. So that's where I'm at right now. This is a trial. It's a test. It's a gift that God will work for our good if we indeed love him and are indeed called according to his purposes. I think he plans to rebuild something beautiful from these ashes, and that's a pun intended there. Uh, we can't rebuild this with merely our own power and intellect and ideas, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So one of the key things we're looking to do is cooperate with God in this rebuilding. So I'm going to use a ship analogy to go through this. At the business meeting after this, this morning message, we're going to talk about the restructuring and reorganizing in CLG in such a way that's like patching the holes in the infrastructure of a ship. The ship needs maintenance. I was talking to someone this last week who knows a lot more about ships than I do, which is virtually any of you. But their analogy was it's like pulling a ship into dry dock. You're lifting it up, you're looking at it, and you're scraping off barnacles, and you're patching holes, and then maybe there's some new paint, that waterproof paint, I, whatever. I don't, so I'm going to stop talking about that. All right, so the best sailors in the world are going to have a hard time really uh, putting a ship on a successful mission if they're just constantly bailing water or they're fixing communication comms. Communication comms, that's insider lingo for shippy people. So we are restructuring and we are reorganizing things kind of in the ship of CLG. And I genuinely believe it's Holy Spirit inspired. And I'm going to talk a little bit about at the beginning of the business meeting just about some things that brought about the changes that we're doing now. But I'm, I'm convinced, I'm going back to what I said earlier this morning, that God is taking us to a place like pulling down all of the things we constructed and going, all right, guys, you're going to start over. Let's get to the bottom so we can work our way back up toward the top. And I think God inspired several people in this church to, to have a plan about how we can address things like this. But I'm also reminded of something that T.S. Eliot once wrote. Since we already quoted one poet, I'll quote another. He, he was talking about political systems, and he was talking about how around the world people try to organize government programs in a particular way. And he said this, 
They constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. So I'm really excited about the system that we're moving into at CLG, but let's not kid ourselves. The system won't make us good, right? We need a savior because the system's only going to be as good as the people who are part of the system. So the business meeting is going to talk about, in some ways, uh, the system, the whole of the ship, the nuts and bolts, those different types of things. I'm going to talk this morning about what it looks like for the passengers and the crew to be sanctified. All right. Thanks to Tom Gordon for this imagery I'm about to use. If you think of the church as a ship, uh, there's two possibilities. One is that it's a discipleship or a disaster ship. I'm going to give five ways both of these things can happen. I'm going to build from what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, which we covered just last week. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. We're going to talk about what that looks like if we don't do that as the passenger and crews of the ship and what it looks like if we do that. So because I want to end with the good news, let's start with the bad news, and that's how to create a disaster ship. Number one, I would say don't take keeping the faith seriously. So we talked last week, this is two things. This is orthodoxy, that's right belief, and orthopraxy. So what is orthodoxy? All right, start with the Bible. That's the foundational document. It's all contained in there. Second thing I would say, you find it in the creeds. For 2,000 years, Christians inspired by the Holy Spirit and reading the Bible have tried to find ways to understand what it means to comprehend what the Bible is saying and apply it wisely in our lives. And then you get, you can throw in church history, church practice also for 2,000 years. And what emerges from that, and we've used this language before, are things that we keep in an open hand and things that we keep in a closed hand. So the things that we keep in an open hand as Christians are those things where the Bible gives us room to disagree about how to think about a particular thing or how something might have a practical application. It's one reason denominations exist. We're having differences about things that don't have any bearing on the eternal state of our souls, but they will have bearing on how we do life together. Open hand things. But the reason we continue to be in fellowship about open hand things is because we've all closed our hands around other core things. This is the divinity of Jesus. This is that Jesus died and he rose physically from the dead, that he is the sole source of our salvation and our sanctification, our only hope in this life and the next. We build from there. Even within this building, we close our hands around closed hand things. And I'm going to get to this later. We hold a lot of things in an open hand here just in this room. But the reason we're able to do that is because we've done this. I was seeing some polling this week of beliefs uh, that white evangelicals have. And I only make that distinction because black evangelicals in the United States tend to be much more orthodox theologically than white evangelicals do. But white evangelicals, that's mostly us here, only 52% strongly agree that the Bible is their highest authority. 50, just over half of evangelicals cite the Bible as their highest authority. Only 58% believe Jesus' death is the only sacrifice that removes the penalty of sin. 48%, less than half, believe that only those who trust solely in Jesus will return and will receive eternal life. So that's building a disaster ship. 
That's not a sustainable faith because it's not the faith. It is something different. That took issues that were meant to be in a closed hand and it opened it up and eventually they will float away. The second part then of keeping the faith is taking orthopraxy seriously. In other words, simply living as if we believe God is serious about what he says, about what he has called us to in terms of walking in the path of righteousness. I mentioned last week that obedience is a means of getting to know God. There's other ways, of course. We read the Bible. The Holy Spirit works in us. But obedience is a means of getting to know God. So that means disobedience means we're getting to know something that's not God. I think the equation is pretty solid on that one. And this obedience simply speaks to integrity. It speaks to character. It speaks to consistency and commitment. It's not calling you to perfection on this side of heaven because you're not going to get there. God's going to finish that work on the other side. This is about in this life, are we committed? Do we go through the process of repentance when we fail and then we experience the restoration of God's spirit and God's people as they walk alongside of us? I mentioned last week that Paul knew what was true and he knew what to do. That's keeping the faith seriously. And if we don't do that, that's the way to build a disaster ship. The second thing is this. We fight all the secondary fights in church instead of focusing on the good fight. So I mentioned this last week and I gave some examples of how I've seen this happen. Like in my church history, some, when I was growing up, things that split churches that ought never have split churches. But the idea here is that we can get so busy fighting skirmishes off to the side that we lose our focus on the main battle, or to use Paul's imagery, the course that we're supposed to be running, and that is sharing the good news of the grace of God. That's my quote from Paul. Uh, I think if we're not careful, we can get very good at winning battles that are right in front of us and losing wars. Or maybe another way is we're running really short races and we're losing the large race if we're not careful. Uh, there's a scene in Wonder Woman, for any of you who have seen the recent Wonder Woman movies, that I think actually speaks to this. She's being taken to fight, and I forget which world war it was. Was it one? Okay, I'm the only one who's seen this movie. All right, so she's being taken to fight in a battle, and as they're getting close to the front lines, she's walking past places where the chaos of war has hit, and families are weeping over dead family members, and people are starving, and they're freezing to death, and she wants to keep stopping and helping these people, and the people with her say, no, this is not the fight. We need you on the front lines, because if the war stops, this stops. And it's not as if she was looking at bad things. In fact, the stuff that was getting her attention were good things. But if she dealt with that good thing right in front of her and the broader war didn't end, she was just going to deal with the same thing again, give it enough time. And so with her particular set of skills, we need you in the front. That's the big focus and the big picture idea. So it wasn't that what broke her heart wasn't important. In fact, it was. It's just... If she fixed that, she'd be back again in a month to fix it again. True change flows from truly changed people. And if we're not careful, we can get so busy directing the hands and feet of people that we forget about the hearts of people. And that if we get their hearts in the right place, their hands will do the right thing and their feet will take them to the right places as well. And when I say if we get their hearts in the right place, I'm talking about sharing the good news of the grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And to clarify, this is, once again, it's not an either-or. Like, you can care about that thing on the side and try to find a way to be involved. I'm not suggesting you ignore them. It's good to stop hands from doing evil and stop feet from taking us there. But clean hands are connected to a pure heart. That's Psalm 24.4. So I would say that on a disaster ship, and see if I can go back to my ship analogy, people spend a lot of time butting heads over what color do we paint the galley? That's where they make food. Is that right? Yes. All right. Uh, oh, the paint in the galley or what kind of wax we should use on the floors. Those would be silly things to get distracted by because they really don't matter. But there might be more serious things like um, how do we fasten the sail properly? What kind of sail should we use? We're on a sailboat now. And that's a good thing too. But honestly, probably the most important thing you could do if you want to make a ship work is you get to know the captain. You learn to love the crew, and you figure out what mission your ship is on. Those are the key things. After that, other things have their place. There might actually be a better kind of wax. <laughs> there probably is. Okay, that's a good idea, but it's not the main idea. It's something worth getting to eventually, but it's not the primary thing. Point number three, on a disaster ship, people hide from each other. So a couple weeks ago, Tom Gordon talked about choosing our hard. That is, all of life is full of hard choices. And we can make some hard choices that choose, lead us to disaster, and we can make some hard choices that lead us to something really good. So uh, I would argue this. The first thing I'm going to argue is that I screwed up my, uh, my notes. Ah, oh, yes. Okay. Here we go. I can choose in a church setting to hide from people, to withdraw from people, to not honestly confront people, to not be present with people in a way that I know God has called me to be present with people, and that is with truth, with grace, with love, with accountability, with honesty. Uh, it also requires me to be transparent. I mean, I know God calls me to do that. I can choose not to do that. But if I choose not to do that, that is going to lead to something hard. And that hardness will be bitterness, and loneliness and division. Those are hard things, and those hard things don't bear fruit. Well, they bear fruit, but it's not the good kind. Or I can do the opposite. I could do the thing God has called me to, which will be really hard, and that is be faithfully present with this congregation. That is making myself accountable. It is having the conversations I need to have. It is stepping into places of tension rather than hiding from places of tension. And that, friends, will be hard but it's good fruit. It's good fruit. Um, think to yourselves while I figure out how I got my pages so disastrously out of order. Oh, here we go. All right. Number four. See, I didn't hide from you. I told you exactly what was going on. Here's another thing that created a disaster ship. You can become too nearsighted or too farsighted. And by that, I mean we can become either too inwardly focused in the life of the church or too outwardly focused so that we don't see the life in the church. My best analogy here has to do with magnifying glasses or telescopes. So let's keep this in mind. Magnifying glasses are a cool thing, right? They bring things you can't see well into focus. Um, and you can do interesting things with ants. Telescope is entirely different. You... You see things far away with a clarity you didn't have otherwise. 
So these are both good things, but I think if there's, if there's a tension or difficulty that emerges on a disaster ship, it's that one of them becomes so primary that we don't see with the other one. So if we get so outwardly focused that all we think about is what's happening out there, that's a recipe for things close to home getting messy and unaddressed because we're just not seeing our life together clearly. On the other hand, if we're spending all our life together like this, we are not seeing the fields that are ripe for harvest. So what you're going to see in the history of church movements, but even individual churches and maybe even in our own lives, is that we often do a pendulum on this because we'll, we'll, we'll be off to one side. We're like, yeah, we're doing the good work of discipleship, which is awesome. And then you'll go like, okay, I'm way over here, though. I, I am not seeing the fields, so I need to go to the fields. And then there'll be the sweet spot for a moment as we swing back over. And now we're like, yeah, I see all you guys. And they're like, ugh. Do you understand what I mean by this pendulum idea? I think disaster ships are the ones where people simply ignore the pendulum. I'm not sure you're going to get away from it to some degree. The phrase is often making more disciples or making better disciples. What does your church want to do? We want to do both. I have a feeling we're going to probably go like this over time. The worst thing you can do is ignore the fact that we probably need to keep moving to readdress where we're at. I'm going to talk here in the discipleship where I think what you do is you live in that tension and you stay aware of it. And a disaster ship, I think you simply ignore it. And then finally, number five, don't take love seriously. Love is the heart of Jesus' teaching. Matthew 23, 27 tells us that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What follows from that is love your neighbor as yourself. John 14, 15, if we love him, we keep his commandments. 1 John 4, 20, if we say we love God and hate our brothers and sisters, we're liars. 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest commandment is love, and we're going to wrap up the sermon with some readings from that. 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. The image Paul uses is clear. If we do not have love, it does not matter how nice the ship looks or what kind of wax we have on the floor or how good the dry dock went. It's going to be full of passengers and crew just banging symbols. I'm sorry for people online. Uh, my bad, Doug. Uh, it's going to be full of people just banging symbols together and nobody wants to be on that ship. <laughs> right? Love is what holds us together. So on a disaster ship, you don't take love seriously. So what does it look like then to create a discipleship? First of all, keep the faith. Two ways again. The first has to do with taking orthodoxy seriously. That's study the Bible. It's your primary thing. I've got to highly recommend a website called Bible Gateway. There are lots of websites where you can study the Bible. If I don't mention the one you like, that doesn't mean it's not a good website. This is just one that I, I start a lot of my sermon prep with Bible Gateway. If you go to Bible Gateway, you can get a membership. It's pretty cheap. I'm going to say maybe five bucks a month, something like that. And once you log in, it just opens up a world of commentary and context and so many beautiful things so that when you do your devotions, um, and I like to read with paper, don't get me wrong, but I have discovered I really like Bible Gateway because I read a passage of scripture and then I go to the side and I go, okay, open this up for me. And Bible Gateway opens it up for me. I really recommend that when you read the Bible, you study the Bible also. Uh, in some ways, I like to think of it as all of y'all should be doing sermon prep, 
right? Read a passage and maybe think, how would I present this to somebody else? And then study it. The second thing is study the creeds. I have included a link in my notes, which you can find on the paper, but also online. It's in the notes there. I found a great website that has compiled creeds for 2,000 years. I would encourage you to just study creeds so that you can see how has the church continuously wrestled with how to understand the Bible. As you get into more recent creeds, they're going to focus a little more on some open-hand issues, but then those aren't really creeds as much as they might be statements of faith. Um, and applications. You can go to our church website. We have our own statement of faith. It's not the same as a creed. It just says these are the foundational things that we are building our church on. But I would encourage you to be familiar with how the church has wrestled with understanding Scripture throughout history. And then my third point would be this. We're evangelicals. I would encourage you to go to the National Evangelical Association. They have a huge website. They have a statement of faith. But also, if you click on the little tab that says Topics, you could spend months or years walking through what evangelicals in the United States have been saying. This organization is probably 70 or 80 years old, I want to say. So you could, you could spend all kinds of time finding out what the broader church community you're part of, which is evangelical, evangelicalism in the United States, has to say about things. All right, so that's uh, taking orthodoxy seriously. Second thing. Take orthopraxy seriously. Live as if we take God's word and the path of righteousness seriously. Not only is it a means of getting to know God, I think it's a means of getting to honor God's image bearers. When I follow God's direction for my life about how to be a good husband, not only do I get to know God because I'm learning something about the heart of God as he kind of reveals to me what it looks like to have a heart that flows out a particular way to my wife, but I'm honoring my wife. That's the other part of it. It's not just about me. If I genuinely love Sheila as Christ loved the church, oh, that's good for her. But that's the way God works, right? He gives rules for our good. The same thing happens when we show up in the church family. We, we honor the path of righteousness because that's how we honor God's image bearers. And I would really encourage you to become part of a group that holds you accountable. This does not have to be a small group here in the church, like an official small group, though those small groups do, in fact, do that. You don't need to have something that formal. You can just get two or three other people and go, okay, I need you in my life because, for one, I'd like us to study Scripture together because I don't want to read Scripture in a vacuum. I want to read Scripture with God's people so that we can, we can help each other out in understanding and applying it. But also, I need people around me who know me. Um, I need people around me to whom I can confess my sins and they can confess their sins. And we ask for God's forgiveness and we talk about what it looks like to go to those we need to and ask for their forgiveness. And we talk about this is what I'm wrestling with and how does God's word and God's spirit build me up. So I'm not talking about just affinity groups or people, places where people just pat you on the back and say you're perfect just the way that you are because you aren't. All God's people said, Okay, good. Want to make sure we're tracking. People who look at you and go, do you see yourself for who you are and why you need Christ? That's, that's gospel gold. Right? That's what I mean by accountability. And that will help you take both orthodoxy and orthopraxy seriously. 
Second thing, in a discipleship, we focus our primary effort on fighting the good fight. And that is, once again, to quote Paul, testifying to the good news of God's grace. So God knows that I know how easy it is to become distracted. It's easy for me to become distracted on things that can undermine my ability to talk about the good news of God's grace. It's easy for you to be distracted by secondary things that will undermine your ability to talk about the good news of God's grace. And all God's people said, it wasn't as loud as the last one. Right? So this, this once again, isn't an either or because, and I, I have some footnotes in here. It's a lot of things we could talk about this. This isn't either or. There are secondary causes in the world around us that are deeply intertwined into the primary cause that we're called to, and that is talking about the truth and the grace of God. So it's not as if we ignore other things and have nothing to say and nothing to do. I'm not saying that at all. This is a question of focus, time, and emotional investment. I think the big question probably is, how is this creating more or better disciples? If I deeply engage in this thing, how is it creating more and better disciples? And if I find that I'm deeply engaging in a thing that I'm really passionate about, but it's actually undermining my ability to help create more or better disciples, uh, then I got to address that. Because I can make a good thing an ultimate thing, and that's called idolatry. And if you're anything like me, uh, I'm doing a lot of introspection and thinking about, you know, I, I know what I believe the ultimate thing is, but I wonder how many times have I looked at other secondary things and gone, I think this is so important. And the reality was it was important, but it wasn't so important in fact, I, I might have won a battle over here and lost the war. Might have engaged in ways that undermined my ability to speak of the grace of God to someone who needs to hear it. And God forgive us if that's what we do. And the third thing is, Build discipleship, be honest with each other. I think we have to commit to being fully known and fully knowing so that we can be fully loved and fully love. It's impossible to do this without the grace and love of God. Okay, so I might have lost some sleep over this section this week, but here we go. Uh, we here in this, this church, we're too politically, socially, and psychologically diverse for CLG to work by any cultural standard. But so was the early church, and God brought them together for the express purpose of displaying his glory by unifying ununifiable people. I, I think we're too broken for this church to work. We're too easily offended and too casually offensive. I mean, how many of us spent how much time wondering who voted for whom this last year? And then wondering why on earth they would do that. Are they even Christians? We have people in our church who participated in Black Lives Matter marches. And we have people in our church who participated in MAGA marches. And yet you're here together. 
How is that possible? We feel tension even now, I think, whenever you walk into a room where some people have masks and some people don't. And now you're really feeling it, looking around the room out of the corner of our eyes, right? We fill this room up with our baggage on any given Sunday. That's just the reality of it. The range of backgrounds and preferences and quirks and strengths and weaknesses is simply too much for us on our own strength to go about creating this new humanity that Paul talks about. In fact, let me just, let's just visit what Paul says. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. And here he is talking about specifically Jews and Gentiles who were separated by a chasm. And now they're trying to create this new church where they're bringing together. It's probably hard for us to imagine just how huge that gap was. But if you read the rest of what Paul says, we're bringing together slave and free. Masters and slaves are in the same church. Uh, Men and women in a culture where there was a huge divide between how men and women were treated and viewed, they're coming into this new humanity. Um, I'm forgetting the entire list, but you get the idea. Like, everybody's coming together in this church. And so, so Paul says this, and the he in the second word is Jesus. For Jesus himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, that's Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity and out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. It's interesting to me that Paul basically said, we looked at it last week, Paul's like, I'm revealing the perfect patience of God, which wasn't Paul going, I'm amazing. It's Paul going, I'm a piece of work. If God is patient with me, you guys understand just how patient that is. Yet, what if we embrace the idea that CLG is revealing God's perfect patience at work? (laughs) Can we just run with that? I mean, it's the reality. He's creating a church body that ought never be cohesive But because of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the things we close our hands around, there is this new humanity, this new community that emerges in a way that is supposed to just be wondrous to those from the outside looking in going, what is going on there? You guys have no business loving each other, and yet you do. Point number four, we need to get bifocals. So that God helps us see clearly both near and far away. So here's how I think we do this in the church. You nearsighted people, and by that I mean those of you, I don't mean that as an insult. I mean 
you have great clarity about stuff right in front of you. It has to do with discipleship, holiness, what does it look like for judgment to begin in the house of God, that type of thing. We need you. We need you to show us how to be and to make better disciples and how to do the hard work of sanctification. Those of you who are farsighted, we need you to do the work of farsighted people. Show us how to make more disciples. Show us how to see the world with clarity so we go into the highways and the byways and we compel people to come in. It's part of the diversity of the church because even this is an area that will cause tension, right? Some of you are going to be going, y'all, we're not spending enough time here in the church working on sanctification, we're so busy looking out there and far-sighted folk are going, fields are ripe for harvest. You're spending so much time navel-gazing, we're not going to get anywhere. Okay, that's going to cause tension. That's meant to be a healthy tension in the church where people sit down and go, yeah, it's not either or. It's both and. Let's figure out what it looks like to match people up with their gifts and their talents and their skills and what God has called them to do. And we can flourish. We, we might do a little bit of this pendulum swing, but at the end of the day, we're never going to keep our eyes off the middle. We're going to keep looking at what it looks like to honor God fully. And then finally, take love seriously. I mentioned last week about those who have loved the appearance of Jesus and the idea in those words is that they, they love that Jesus came and displayed for us God in the flesh and what it means to, to live a life in which we are continually transformed into his image. So that means being committed to thinking God's thoughts, preferring what God prefers, weeping over what breaks the heart of God, rejoicing over what God rejoices over. And without going into details, I have some ideas in my footnotes, but I, I just wonder if the summary is, what does love look like in this moment with this person and in this situation. You're talking with someone after church and maybe they're just your best friend of the world and all as well, or maybe it's someone you're like, oh, I saw what you posted this week. Okay, what does love look like in this moment with this person in this situation? How do we get to a focus on the grace of Jesus Christ in this moment, at this time with this person? What's the most loving words I can say? What's the most loving attitude I can have? What's the most loving action I can take right now in front of me with this person at this time in this situation? And because love is the thing that Jesus keeps referring to, I'm going to wrap up my portion of the morning here with just the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, just to remind us about the power and importance of love. And 1 Corinthians 13, bookended by 12 and 14, brilliant insight. But 12 and 14, Paul was writing about tensions in the church over good things, actually. He's talking about tensions in the church. How do you do life together? Chapter 13 is the middle. What if I speak in the most elegant languages of people or in the exotic languages of heavenly messengers, but I live without love? Well, that anything I say is the clanging of brass or a crashing cymbal. What if I have the gift of prophecy and I'm blessed with knowledge and insight to all mysteries? What if my faith is strong enough to scoop a mountain from its bedrock and yet I live without love? If so, I'm nothing. I could give all that I have to feed the poor. I could surrender my body to be burned as a martyr, but if I do not live in love, I gain nothing by my selfless acts. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love isn't envious. It doesn't boast or brag or strut about. There's no arrogance in love. It's never rude or crude or indecent. It's not self-absorbed. Love isn't easily upset. Love doesn't tally wrongs or celebrate injustice. Truth, truth is love's delight. Love puts up with anything and everything that comes along. It trusts, it hopes, and it endures no matter what. Love will never fail. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.